Welcome to Weed Week. I'm Alex Halpern. And I'm Donnell Alexander. This is the Weed Week podcast. You can subscribe to our free newsletters, Weed Week, Weed Week California, and Weed Week Canada, all at weedweek.net. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News. Got any feedback? Write to us at hello at weedweek.net. Today we have an interview with Daniel Yarian, publisher of Pyramid Press, that's Pyramid Press, to talk about Jerry Kampstra's book from 1974, Weed, Adventures of a Dope Smuggler. So this was a big bestseller? It sold a lot of copies. This is actually the fifth edition that we have coming out here um, that we're going to be talking about today. Um, It's well well known. Are you familiar with Jerry at all? Not too much. Well, he's a writer and a photographer, but mostly he was a dope dealer. And he was uh, in North Beach. We'll, We'll let Daniel tell you more about it, but... I, I was thinking about him because you know I have my travails with the the big shots in cannabis yeah. around here these days, and I'm reading his book. I, I couldn't take issue with some of his stuff because he's a real adventurer. He has this knack that only you could have done years and years ago of analyzing culture that he probably has no business analyzing. <laughs> but he's kind of accurate, so you want to give him props for that. But I think he's a he's a storyteller in the purest sense. I think about him in terms of today's uh, cannabis leaders because I. There's really not a sense of adventure. Maybe there's a business adventure done that I don't understand. <laughs> Do you feel like these well, guys are cowboys in their own right? They're cowboys in their own right, yeah. but it, it, it's a different kind of cowboy. Jerry achieves this really amazing feat in cannabis that I can't blow, and I guess even our guest doesn't blow because he alludes to it, and he doesn't tell the whole story. That's a publisher for you. Yeah. <laughs> but first, we're going to talk a little bit about farming. We're going to talk about The Great Outdoor, and it's a docu-series that Flocana's put out. So Flocana is a, a company in Northern California. They don't grow their own, but they're sort of like a central clearinghouse for Northern California growers. They are so involved with the, the plant, and mm. that's one of the reasons I think they did this film. Uh, I, I became familiar with what they do beyond that gathering of all that pot that you spoke of, because they put on this thing that's like a, a farm-to-bowl Olympics mm-hmm. up, up in Humboldt County, and I think Mendocino, somewhere in the Emerald Triangle. They're not growing, but they're processing and putting all this bud together. And they've raised a lot of money. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Without naming any names, some of the companies have been a little uh, scandalous, but Flow Canada doesn't have that sort of reputation. And what they're trying to do here is um, normalize the actual growing of the plant. You know, when you see these, this family, I think the first one's called Meet the Farmer. This family is, uh, you know, mom, dad, children, and their breakfast is so beautiful, the way the Mom talks about their lifestyle is so um, flowery and amazing. I'm sure they're like the optimal compliant family, but that's the thing. You're seeing what a compliant family in cannabis looks like, and they don't look like anybody from, say, Jerry Kamstra's book. <laughs> but they're struggling. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is interesting to see. You know, it's, So the family is struggling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because the tone is very ho- hopeful and upbeat, but the content is about a family that's going through a dark harvest. Aren't they saying that like this year's harvest is better? Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be amazing. I mean, I've heard people speak thrillingly. I'm sure there's a lot of action up north that I don't know about. Sometimes they say, like, 
you know, with wine, it was like there are good vintages and bad vintages. And <laughs> so, is this going to be a good vintage? Yeah, I don't is, know. I don't, is, I don't know if that's how cannabis is going to be classified. Know, right, right. But the fact is, it's not all like a flow canna world. And there are these gangsters up in the San Bernardino Mountains who are having a fabulous harvest, <laughs> and they're feeding way more, way more bulls. And such. <laughs> all right. Well, here is Daniel Yarian in our interview about. Jerry Kempstra, author and dope smuggler. Welcome, Daniel Yarnian, publisher of Pyramid Press. You're here to tell us about a really intriguing book. I haven't read it, but the stuff I've been reading, um, God, it has me interested i love the stories of adventure so mm-hmm. tell us about it okay so weed is a reissue of a book that was first published in 74 it's a it's a 45th anniversary special edition jerry camstra in the mid 60s he started heading into mexico and it all started with him um bringing things across the border like levi's and and goods and yeah, other, he's coming other, he's coming from california yeah he was actually smuggling stuff into Mexico, and then he was smuggling things out of Mexico. Okay. And so he, how did he get into this? So he had a friend that, that connected him up. So he's a friend. So he was a friend, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, just to go back to the beginning. He's a writer anyway. He yes. wrote a book in 1975 that was about his period in the 50s as yes. kind of a hippie or a beatnik. I don't know the difference. Yes, it's called The, uh, the Frisco Kid. So he's a guy who has a sense of narrative. And you were going to come through... You're going to explain why we don't have the man himself here, and then you were going to read us a section of his book. Okay. Why isn't he here? So, um, well, Jerry's 84 years old. Mm. He has advanced Parkinson's. He has cancer. And he's in a convalescent hospital in Santa Cruz, which is where I'm from Uh as well. Is that how you know him? Yeah, we actually met the flea market years ago. How many years ago? Uh, Ten years ago. But our paths crossed for... For many decades, we actually wrote for the Good Times newspaper in Santa Cruz. Yeah, we we wrote for them at the same time. Our, our, we shared the masthead, but we never met face to face because back then you just went in and dropped off this relic called a, a floppy disk. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he wrote. I, I would consider him like the Bohemian or beatnik Mark Twain. Mm. Huh. Yeah. Okay, that's a pretty big claim. I think this is a good part for you to read our, that section of the, okay. his book, because uh, right. I want to hear the okay. the Mark Twain of that sort. Okay. This is from the preface to um, Weed Adventures of Dope Smuggler, and he wrote this, in, this preface in 1972. Mm. It is difficult to be objective when writing about Mexico. I love Mexico. I love the land and the people, especially the poor people the campesinos, the people of the fields. I also hate Mexico. I hate the injustice and poverty and the inhumanity and greed of much that goes on there. Mexico is a land divided between beauty and ugliness, between poverty and wealth, between all the dualities that make everything exciting and meaningful. By circumstances beyond my control, I got into the heart of Mexico through marijuana, I became a smuggler, and because of that, I entered the Sierras where few gringos go. He wrote that in 75. What's the story behind him writing this book? 
Well, he wrote it in the early 70s, mm-hmm. but he, he, he experienced it from the, mid, the mid-60s until the point when he wrote the book. Mm. Okay, so you were telling us that he went into Mexico from California. This is from Santa Cruz. Where was he operating out of? You know? um, he lived in Big Sur at the time. Mm. Yeah, he'd go down there, and uh, he would actually smuggle goods into Mexico, like mostly like things like clothing. And yeah, he'd actually, his, he, was, he had a family, and his family was actually helping him you know, um, smuggle stuff in. They'd, they'd actually, he'd throw down a mattress with all the goods inside the mattress, and they would lay on the, ba- on the mattress in the back of the truck, and they'd go across the border. So they just saw them there, and, you know, his wife pretended to be sick, you know, and they went, oh, yeah, just whatever, go mm-hmm. ahead. This is written in 75. His adventures are happening in Mexico. When and how does he ca- connect with the weed people? He he would connect with them um, early on in North Beach in San Francisco. So when he was he was actually dealing he was actually dealing drugs in in uh, North Beach, uh, Colum- uh, Broadway in Columbus. That's the epicenter of of North Beach, where City Lights Books is for Linguetti City where Lights it all Books. Happened. That's Ooh. where that's all where it all went down. And Jerry Jerry is an early beatnik and proto hippie. The cutoff is pretty much those that were there. Uh, before 1960 were beatniks. The ones that sh- showed up after 1960 were hippies. Oh, so <laughs> is the distinction between a hippie and a beatnik just that year? Is there like a qualitative difference between um, the two? Yeah, Aesthetic, yeah, moral? It's, it, well, it's, it's just a little, a little bit different. You know, the, the, the hippies would, would kind of check out, check out more. Hmm. Whereas, you know, the... You could be a beatnik and work at an ad agency. You, you you can yeah it was more like it was like the residue of the of the fifties mm-hmm. so mid mid fifties people are starting to shake off the Eisenhower stuff mm-hmm. and uh, get less square and you had <laughs> Lenny Bruce coming onto the scene in the late fifties you know being a proponent for free speech so it was a time it was a major time of change it was a time of change before what most people consider summer of love like which came a decade right. later. Right. Right. I know a lot of adventures start in San Francisco in the 60s, and this is one. Yeah. Right? How does North Beach connect with what goes on in Mexico? You know, one of his friends, he, you know, he had a, like a gig for him, and he started working with his friend Jesse, and they started going down there, and he, he went down first on his own, like with those goods I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. but then he, he went for some, some big bucks. And he actually, what uh, prompted him to start smuggling marijuana was he wanted to fund his life as a writer hmm. so he wanted to be able to to write so he he actually uh, approached life magazine with an article about gringo smugglers in in, in the <laughs> a in, first person narrative well here's here's what it was he he was telling them he was doing an article about those smugglers he didn't say he was the one he didn't say it's first person so what they did is they, and back then it was a lot of money. Uh, they they gave him five grand. Life, um, Life magazine, five gave, grand. They, well, it doesn't it's it's not it's nothing now. But five grand. <laughs> for, and, no, and no, that from time, a magazine uh, now it's a lot. No, I, 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 yeah, they've come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. had to be James Baldwin to get five yeah, grand yeah, or so, a smuggler. <laughs> so anyway, it, it, it was to finance the a photo expedition down there and to take photographs of of the fields and and the people and and the and the process of it. Mm. And of course, because he was the gringo smuggler, unbeknownst to them, 
he really had an inside track, but they discovered that he he was in fact the one, and they pulled the plug on the article. So he actually uh, went and sold it to, and their five grand financed him buying actually buying a marijuana field to hmm. to cultivate. Oh, that's great! In the Guerrero Mountains, yeah. This he he is the pioneer of marijuana. Wait, what yes. do you mean by that? <laughs> what I mean by that is. The, the amount that he brought in, he really, he really, like, he brought it. He brought a ton of weed, literally. A literal ton of weed. A liter- literally a ton of weed into the United States. Yeah. At a time? It, or total? All at once. Yeah. How did he bring a ton of weed in Like at in once? a mattress? Yeah, this isn't like Midnight <laughs> Express with like a, like a, you know, belt of, of drugs or hashish or whatever. This is like... A ton. A ton. A literal ton. How did he do it? Plane to do, do that, right? Well, you got to read the book. Oh, <laughs> oh, you no, got to yeah, read the no, book. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> no. I, I'm so curious because here's here's my deal, Alex. I, I don't know if I've said this to you. I talk to so many people in cannabis. These. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of big shots in cannabis, and they act like they're fucking rock stars. And I always, and sometimes I hold back. I don't always hold back. <laughs> what have you done? I always say, and that's why I love these stories where people were risking it, doing crazy things, and you're not going to tell us how he did it. <laughs> well, like I'm, I'm kind of on the fence whether I should or not. Oh, you, you can tease. Me. I agree with Donnie. Not that you, you have to tell us. And you know, I'm all for people buying the book, and I love these stories about how smugglers did their thing. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I. I respect Wild. I was thinking that the other day when watching the uh, the Motley Crue biopic. I was like, these guys are. I respect these guys. Well, we have to we have to discuss that. That's another podcast. I, yeah. I read Nikki Six's book, and I'm intrigued. But go on. <laughs> yeah. So he survived the danger, and he evaded the law. At a a time before there were big operations and cartels and what have you that were bringing drugs into the United States from Mexico. In that way, he really is a pioneer. Hmm. There wasn't like a a competitive thing going on. But, you know, there also weren't records. Someone might have done it and not written a book about it. There's that. It wasn't just a like one point process there are many there are many there are many steps many phases involved it was a it was a full-on operation that had many people involved and you know just passing the baton to make this happen was this a one-shot job or was it a continuing operation the central like operation that's in this story that's the big that's the big one the, the one ton of marijuana being moved across the border and how they did it but interestingly what there were many operations before this, and he was actually busted at the border, and uh, he was on probation. He was arrested. The book starts with him getting busted on one of his runs over the border mm. and getting shot at. You said something that I have to put to both of you, because I know you know a lot, Alex. Do you think people were able to have these adventures in the 60s and 70s because it was pre-cartel, because you know it was still a little bit of a wide-open country in terms of drug sales? Yes, and he actually goes into that in the book in terms of seeing, he sees the, the mounting tensions that led to, you know, organized crime and all the gangsters. This was like pre-gangster, you know, you're, it was a time when you didn't, you could be an outlaw without being a gangster. Hmm. So I would consider him an outlaw. Hmm. It seems like, you know, back then, just like there wasn't, McDonald's there were hamburger stands <laughs> you, you, you know and then the the cartel the cartels you know essentially invented a form of mass 
mass production, which involved also sort of escalating violent crime. But in a lot of ways, probably, you know, we, we always say the world was a simpler place back then, and that applied to any number of things, but perhaps also to the, the drug world. It was just a lot more casual, a lot less mm-hmm. eyes on you, a lot less attention being paid. Well, the the fascinating thing with his story is his observations where that starts to diminish, where the more people are coming down there and trying to do what he's doing, the more they're they're like tightening the reins on on I bet, yeah. everybody and shutting shutting people down that are like you know that were involved with it. They they really crack down and it actually goes into the the early embers of the drug war. That's what's that's what's amazing about that. That's why this has been optioned for a film five times. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fascinating story. There's there's five screenplays on this already. <laughs> really? I love that. Yeah. Why do you think it hasn't been made? I'm not sure. I think um, the last time where it was on the standstill is because there was another literary based um, literary classic film by that by the producer who was going to produce this that didn't do well. So it's a finicky business. Totally arbitrary. Yeah, it's it's it be it could be a number of things, or it could be nothing. Stuff stuff sits around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Weed's pretty hot right now. But yeah. this this is a hot topic. I've I've I have people that are trying to do an option with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's he like? I know you've got this legendary person who's in the book, but you used to hang out with him in Santa Cruz. What's Jerry Kempstra like? I would consider him my father figure. Hmm. He really is. You, you know, my my parents have have father long and said father and said bud smoking is Woody. how how is he like a father figure to you? It's like a, a kindred spirit. He it's like I'm 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 learning from him about it's like the creative lineage. So it's less about like oh we're just we're just we just, we just smoke out together. There's more to it. You can smoke out with anybody, and it's like you know that that could be just more brotherly, sisterly, whatever. This is a deeper deeper rooted um, relationship. Because he's, I'm, I'm carrying on his legacy. It's become that. It started out with me meeting him at, at the flea market. He was selling artwork out of the back of his VW van. But now when I look back at my history in Santa Cruz, I, I, and my memories of Santa Cruz and where I was at different places have, have since are no longer there, I think of Jerry like driving through there with his VW, bu- his v- VW van and mm-hmm. what he was doing. Mm-hmm. At the time when he published Weed, um, in 1974, he hosted the Santa Cruz Poetry Festival, which was the largest in, in the world at, at, at the time. There were five of them. He was involved with all five and director of two of them. So in 74, he actually had a benefit for Americans in Mexican jails to send money to to people like him that were busted, and they're sitting there. It was called AIMJ, so it's a a i m. Dash J, so it was Aim J, and that was the name of his organization. He started to do this, hmm. to to make sure that these you know these families and the and they don't rot away in these cells like he he had the risk of doing. You know, a lot of writers have made their way hustling weed mm-hmm. and other things on the side. Do you feel like he's part of that tradition? Do you do you guys talk anything about that? Well, that's that's an affinity he has with with the beats. I mean, he was. He's part of that's he's like one of the last bohemian wizards around, you know. He's like the 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 wise sage well, wizard, I go to. Wizard? Yeah, just like his 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 prose, his his artistry 
and the way he influences me and he influences other people, not just people in the, in the cannabis community, but just creative people in general. What are his thoughts on legalization? <laughs> he thinks it's great, yeah. Like, and of course. Does, and but is he aware of the system? Does he have any observations or complaints about it? I mean, a lot of people, even when you go to like places like Santa Cruz, you have people who are critical of how it's coming into existence, legalization. I, th- You know... I would consider him a transcendentalist. So any anything any type of rules that keep people from doing thing like things like going like swimming naked in, in the ocean in Santa Cruz in the middle of the day or you know smoke a big fat joint like walking down the sidewalk like he doesn't like rules. He's a laid back guy. He doesn't he doesn't complain a lot about anything. He doesn't have a mean word to say about anybody. Is there a distinction between weed and the Frisco Kid, stylistically, they're very different books. I know one is a fictionalized memoir, and this is a straight-ahead memoir. This one's a road journal. Weed is a road journal, whereas the Frisco Kid is the most in-depth account of North Beach, late 50s, early 60s, during the San Francisco Renaissance slash Beat era. It was actually it was a hard time. It wasn't it wasn't a glorious thing like it was in um, portrayed in in movies. It sure, wasn't yeah. it wasn't it was Dobie, hard. <laughs> it wasn't Dobie Gillis. What, what do you guys mean? Why, why was oh, it hard? It was, oh, it, was, it was hard because the the police used to beat the crap out of them. There are four major newspapers that have a front page photo. Uh, I would say it's about a, a, one of those big like assassination size photos of Jerry with his head squished on the steps of City Hall with a bunch of cops, like, beating him up when he was there protesting the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee in 1960. And they used to, the cops used to go and do impromptu raids in the cafes and, and parties and just clobber everybody, just like they'd go into clubs and, and bust Lenny Bruce for obscenity. So it was really a war of wills between free expression to its furthest extent and the era that they rolled out of, it was Very like repressive. Era. Repressive, yeah. So that you had these oppressors that used to go and beat them up. And one one of my favorite poets, and it was a he was a friend of um, of Jerry Campster, was a Bob Kaufman. They used to they used to beat the hell out of him. He has some of the most beautiful poetry that's ever been created. Yeah, he does. You have something of a museum, right, regarding yes. Jerry's stuff. Yes, it's it's called the Campstra Sparring Archive. And it, it's we we call it the sparkive. The sparring comes from sparring with sparring with beatnik ghosts, which is the the po- poetry multimedia show that I've put together that's been going for ten years, and it's actually how Jerry and I connected up is through that. And so, what do you what do you have of his? So, as opposed to putting putting his materials into special collections at different places. I've created the archive for him for, with materials he's given me, like illustrations of uh, with Charles Bukowski of by Charles Bukowski and and notes to Sh- to Shig, the bookstore um, uh, manager who was arrested for selling Hal. I have these rare artifacts, and I'm having these sparring artist salons at the the Sparkive where people come and they do everything from read poems, play music, um, do, a, do a portion of their play, show off their artwork, and go around Robin in a circle. And um, it's getting back to uh, people sharing things by the campfire. Mm. Is there anything else we need to know about 
like for example, where we can get weed. Mm-hmm. The book. I know where we can get weed. Yeah. <laughs> where can we get the book? And, the Frisco and some kit. of your other books, yeah. Yeah, so um, I really want to uh, push for people to go on to lulu.com to, to access weed. Just go in there, type in weed, Camstra, K-A-M-S-T-R-A. Why Lulu? Because that's, that's, that's my starting point. I just feel like... But it's on Amazon. It's, it is on. Yeah. It's, it's that place. Yes, it is there. But Lulu's Ooh. your starting point because... You know, I just you know I want like I want to support the underdog. Mm. You know, like you just like how much you know how much does one place have to have? You know, that's the eternal <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Daniel, thanks for coming through, man. And yeah, educating us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, thank you. And that's our show for today. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News or email us at hello at weedweek.net. If you want to throw us a little money and get some cool swag, um, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash weedweek. Speaking of Patreon, I got a note from, um, from consistent listener Tom Moreno, a.k.a. Tom Moreno 32. Uh, he sent something on Instagram. Nice bonus episode. Kern County is a fascinating study of California legalization. He's referring to our, uh, the episode that I did up in Bakersfield where we talked about why there's no pot in Bakersfield. I thought, I have a real affinity for the stuff that's on Patreon, and I know that you know, clearly not as many people see it as do our regular episodes, but they're every bit as worthwhile. Uh, the other part of Tom's comment was, these monthly Patreon episodes are icing on the cake, but seriously, between this one and the one with Chip Moore from Oakland, are some of the most interesting work you've done for Weed Week. The Chip Moore episode from 4 and 20 back Blackbirds, very good. You should give it a shout. I, are we making that one free? We're yeah, I think we'll, we'll make that one. Yeah, you should check in because some of the episodes have become available without your participation. But, then, you know, when you participate, that's a good thing, too. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Tom. For more Weed News, you can sign up for the Weed Week newsletters, Weed Week, Weed Week Canada, and Weed Week California, all at weedweek.net. I'm Alex Halpern. And I'm Donnell Alexander. Our producers, Hannah Smith and Alicia Byer, wrote our theme music. Additional music is from the late, great Andre Bush. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.